Sport has the power to change the world. Welcome to Telling Our Football Stories. My name is Boise Kumalo, and my guest today is Bilal Saeed, who is a chairperson for AFC and ABBA. In today's episode, Bilal talks about his parents, diversity, and community kicks. Hey, Bilal, how you doing? I'm doing good, boys. Are you? I'm good, thanks, man. What you been doing with your with your time right now? Yeah, it's been a um, it's just been a change for me over probably the last year or so. But um, it, that, in the sense that, like, I'm working from home. Um, I have a son now, um, but you know, I, we haven't played soccer. But other than that, still, it's still community focused work. Um, you know, trying to put programs together um, that, that can impact some some of the younger kids in our community and and beyond. So, yeah, I'm staying busy. What is it like to be a dad? You know, I think everybody always says you can't really explain it until you feel it. And that's probably the best way. I mean, it's amazing. I just it's everything. It puts everything into perspective. And I'm just very thankful. You know, I'm very, very thankful. What's your son's name? Oh, Niall. Niall Shabazz Muhammad Saeed. So I'm like, I wanted him to have a name that like connected him to uh, part of his his past, right? So I was like, okay. the joke the joke between Simon and I has always been like me negotiating how many names he could have. So like, I was like, oh yeah, I just want to do seven, eight, nine names, something like that. And so, you know, actually that negotiation helped me get an extra name and I was able to get um, you know, Shabazz added, squeezed that in there, which, which, you know, is pretty important for me. Cool. Now that's interesting that you, you said seven names, because I know in South Africa too, we have a bunch of names. I also have a, a, a bunch of names. Now, does the names mean anything or is just a name? Yeah. I mean, part, you know, one of the, so being the child of immigrants, I, I had a interesting perspective on life you know, I was trying to find my place. I always felt stuck in, in the middle. And there was a really influential book in my life called The Namesake. And it made me really think about my name because, you know, even as a young, younger um, kid growing up, a lot of people called me Bill uh, or Billy. And I never stopped them. And I, and I honestly hate it. Um, right. When I think of Bill, I think of that, um, you know, that overweight uh, white bald guy from guess who there's this game right and it's like this bald white guy and I'm just like that's not Bill you know I'm not Bill so um, it made me really reflect on like what what a name means and what my name means and um, so when it came time to actually you know uh, start thinking about naming my son um, I, I yeah the name definitely has meaning so you know Niall um, you know something that Simon and I picked out um, and, and Muhammad Saeed is in my name. Her last name is Muhammad. My dad's name is Saeed. And then Shabazz is, is really important because it ties his, his history to um, not only like um, Southeast Asia and India and Pakistan to a, a, a Sufi saint named uh, Shabazz, but it also ties him to someone that was super influential in my life. Uh, Malcolm X, which is Malik al-Shabazz. So something that I can use to teach him about, right? Down the road, he's going to say, Dad, why did you, why is Shabazz part of my name? And it's going to connect him to his past and his history. So it means a lot. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned a little bit about your immigrant parents. Where did they come from? 
Yeah, so uh, both my parents come from Pakistan. I mean, my dad was born in the year of the partition um, and my mom after that, but you know, from the Indian subcontinent, my grandparents, uh, that's where my like heritage is from. And then my, my mom's side of the family migrated to uh, England when she was, um, you know, a young teenager. So some of my uh, younger, like my, my youngest aunt and all my cousins and stuff grew up in England. Um, and I grew up visiting, you know, both England and Pakistan. So wh where were you born? Uh, Michigan. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, good. Now let's talk about Michigan. Uh, how did the AFC and Naba club start? Yeah, Jamie, Jamie, Jamie had, you know, I think Jamie had an idea and, you know, like, you know, especially I would say back in 2014 when he, he kind of got the ball rolling, I think a lot of people uh, weren't in the, you know, habit of taking action, but he took action, you know, he, he launched a, a, an online fundraiser, got the attention of some people, um, you know, I was, I was, tuned into what was happening in the soccer scene. Um, and I was in the sports world in general. So I had caught wind of it. And, you know, another close friend of mine, Rishi, um, actually donated to the campaign. And that's kind of how it all kind of started. How did you get involved? Yeah, so then Rish, you know, Rishi owns um, Underground Printing. So basically, he likes to meet with anybody in town. I mean, he is an owner of a pretty um, successful business, he'll still meet with anyone who wants to sell, buy 10 t-shirts, you know, he just loves meeting new people in the community. Right. And um, so that's what he wanted to do. He just thought this was a really cool thing. And he was he reached out to Jamie and said, let's meet up. And Jamie ended up, you know, realizing something that a lot of us do with Rish is that he's just very, um, I don't know, there's something special about Rish that, you know, like his connectivity and community mindedness. Um, he was just like, we can make this happen. And Jamie had had some obstacles at that point. And Rishi did what he does best. And he started making connections, picks up the phone, calls me, calls Adam and Justin, um, you know, and we all had different projects going on. But I mean, it was it happened quick. I mean, I got a call in December of 2014. I, you know, wrote the check and started building the, all the back end stuff in January 2015. And we were playing in April. So it was wild. Right. So now you are currently the, the chairman of AFC and ABBA. How did you get selected to be the chairman? I don't know if I was actually selected. Maybe just like, um, it just kind of happened. Uh, yeah. I, I think just, you know, the first year we operated, um, first year was definitely like a group mentality and no one really wanted to like, you know, step on anyone's toes. Um, you know, we're a collaborative group, right? Um, and not everybody knew everyone. But I, I do have a background in sport marketing and, and event management. And so that kind of gave me a little bit of a um, um, bigger interest maybe. And so I just naturally wanted to take a bigger role and that just you know progressed and snowballed. And my true background and specialty is sponsorship and content. So those are two of the biggest areas that impact our club. And so it just felt like a natural fit, right? Um, I, I really feel lucky. I don't really feel like it as, as anything more than um, I'm the one honestly willing to put in the time and energy because there's some like there's some brilliant people and part of our ownership group and staff that um, definitely should should be in line before me um, to like lead the organization it's just you know I'm, I'm the right fit for now how many people are on board with AFC and ABBA in the ownership group yes I believe 15 
And uh, like you said earlier, I assume all those people come with different ideas on how the club should should make decisions. Who has the final say to say, okay, this is what we're doing? There's not all, in some in some things. There's um, a group decision. In some things, uh, it's left up to me. So, and and a lot of this is clearly outlined. Um, we try to keep things, you know, pretty organized. So there's no like gray area. So it's pretty clearly spelled out what, you know, what I'm allowed to um, do on my own. And, but there's a lot of trust. I mean, at the end of the day, we operate under a lot of trust. But if we had 15 people trying to make every decision, I don't think it'd be um, very productive and efficient. But at the same time, I mean, our biggest strength is is our collaborative approach, right? And, and you know, tapping into the diversity within our group. I mean, when people talk about diversity, it's like, they're like, oh, you got a brown person leading your group. No, it's not. Diversity is so much more than that. It's like, you know, especially when you think about Ann Arbor and Ipsy, right? There's income diversity. There's, you know, uh, the, just living in Ipsy and Ann Arbor is very different. So the geographic diversity, the mindset of what you do and how you were raised and your culture and your race, all these things are play into. Um, so, so I think it's important on like big decisions to get input from other people and, um, you know, we were lucky enough to add um, our first woman to the ownership group with Christine. And, and so I think that adds a whole nother perspective that, that a, a missing voice, honestly. And I hope that we continue to do that because I don't want to be this, you know, uh, making decisions on things that are super important. I think that's like the whole point of a club is to, to be collaborative, work together, be community minded. I'm more here to like keep, keep, keep the ship going, you know, keep everything going, just run the day-to-day -day and manage the operation more so. Right. How important is it to have a female on the board? I mean, crucial. I mean, and to be honest with you, it's also just a first step. Um, I think it's a little unfair to just have uh, a token, right? Um, I've been a token before. So uh, knowing that Christine is the only woman, uh, that puts her in a, a tough position sometimes in the room. And especially in a, a sports, uh, you know, arena, a male dominated world. Um, so shout out to Christine for her bravery and courage for just owning that, you know, and, and dealing with anything that comes her way. But um, it's amazing because she's, she's not afraid to speak up. She shares her opinion. Um, and we're definitely a club that like, you know, we want to get better. So even 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 though we didn't have a um, that presence, a woman on the in the ownership group and on the board before, now we have that. We don't want to stop. It's not just like a, a box that was ticked. You know, it's like how can we continue to get better? So um, I think I think that you know this is just the beginning in that area. Yes, you also have uh, Max Cameron, who is a big time ex Michigan player, and he's black. What does he bring to the table? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think not only is Knox uh, black, but I mean, he has his Jamaican background, I think gives him a certain understanding of, of what poverty means in, in, in this country and outside of this country. Um, in, in Ann Arbor, it's a tough thing to, to be a minority, but for Knox to have, have been the trailblazer that he was, both him and KT, honestly, in our community, the work that they've done, and um, it's just incredible. So to have that leadership from Knox, like you and I were talking offline the other day, and I was saying like, man, I could listen to Knox talks all, talk all day just because it's not only like um, how he says things, but like 
it's just so impactful what he's saying and he brings this perspective and this insight um but it's how he also like you know i don't know man he's just i really i feel really lucky to be friends with him and to be in in, in a as a part of a business with him because i've learned so much from him yeah no he's a very smart guy and an intelligent guy so i like nags now let's talk a little bit about uh when the club first started you guys played in a great lakes premier league uh for the first season what was that league like to play in it glpl man yes sir um, it was it was interesting so like you know you got to remember we're it, it's january 2015 the season is uh okay you have to say the season is going to start april 2015 but you don't have a season you don't have a league you don't have a lot of things you have a meeting scheduled with some other folks that are in a similar situation situation which was grand rapids uh oakland um i think at the time i forget oakland uh county something you know they had a different name and um so you know it came together really really more out of necessity and and jamie um and matt roberts from grand rapids were, in, were just huge uh, components of making that happen ben rody so i think um it was more out of necessity but for me as soon as i started getting involved and taking a bigger role in things um i started understanding like you know the importance of um certain things that we needed that we were missing right and i thought that we we could find that in in another league and so we we just had to you know find a better solution what are some of those things that were missing yes um i think um you know consistent quality opponents travel um the ability to learn from your um you know the the your opponents right like lower league soccer is interesting you have to like be competitors but you also have to be community members and work together to build and lift each other up i think one thing that's been pretty uh, amazing for me to recognize from the beginning is if you look at um clubs like Kalamazoo FC um Lansing you know di the different clubs um everybody's calling everyone asking for advice and leaning on each other and, and trying to work together for the most part um you know i know we've you know i've done whatever i can to to try and uh, facilitate some sponsorship deals for other clubs that's never slowed me down um which you know in in most people's eyes like why would you ever drive revenue for another team it's like well you know it's all about just surviving and sustainability and what's going to raise the awareness for the game overall in the state but um yeah some of those issues were just like consistency in in logistics um and and as you become more experienced as a club and more professional um or more towards a professional atmosphere um you you want certain things right um and and i think that we just we're, we didn't have those what do you look for when you are hiring a coach on a men's side and on a women's side That's a great question. Um coming from the women's coach on our side that I hired. Um Yeah, for me it's, you know, a lot about the person. Um I think there are a lot of people that can coach uh and that want to coach, but I think and this is how we recruit as well. Um we try and find people that you know it's people that make organizations different and unique and that build the culture i've always felt that and i don't want to bring this like 
you know, business corporate mentality to, to anything. Um, it's not even how I run my businesses, but I do think culture is so important. And I think that starts with your leadership. And so, you know, this about me, it's like, um, I'll, I'll do anything for the club, literally. And everybody knows that. Um, and I expect the same of everyone. Right. So, and, and I think that comes from the style of leadership that you bring into the club. So when I'm looking to, um, you know, bring in people to the club, I'm definitely looking for leaders. I'm looking for um, people who are um, community minded and focused on, on more than just winning and focused on developing um, not only other individuals, but themselves. Right. Now, in 2015, you hired coach Eric Rutland. What made you hire coach Eric Rutland? Knox. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I can't, I'd love to take some of the credit. I mean, the, you know, Knox was like, Knox put a short list together of candidates. Um, we explored them and I had a few conversations with um, people. And um, one of those people that I got to speak with was Eric and, you know, we hit it off. And I think it's super important. You know, my background started in, in collegiate athletics. And I think back to the relationships that I had and the roles I had, but the relationships I had with um, head coaches of division one um, programs, I learned a lot from those relationships. I learned, you know, for me, I learned how big egos can get for coaches and how important that might be at sometimes. Yes. Um, and I was really thankful that uh, Eric's wasn't anywhere near the size of what I had seen or dealt with in, in the past. So I was prepared for that. So he brought this sense of humility. Um, you know, he talked a lot when we spoke, he talked a lot about his family and what, what this, what the opportunity would mean to his family. I mean, I didn't really need to hear much past that. So when I, when we hired him, I didn't know, I, I did not know um, how good of a coach we were really getting. I really didn't know that. Right. Now, walk me through, like, how you guys hire a coach. Now, you said Knox came in with a bunch of names. Now, who's picking the coaches? Are you guys just going through the list? Like, okay, this guy's out. This guy's in. This is a guy we want. Yeah, I mean, it's different for different clubs. Um, you know, we we knew we wanted to make a change. Um, like, Heaps, Heaps was awesome, man. Heaps brought a lot of great things to to our club, especially in the first year his focus on community and his, his like ability to connect with people was pretty special. Um, but like, again, not just we, the league format wasn't exactly what I was thinking, what we, what we needed. I had bigger, bigger hopes and aspirations for the club. So, you know, we put out an open call, actually, we, for me, it's always about opportunity for everyone. So um, access and equality is important. And so having an open field to candidates and letting people know and get really actually doing the work, meaning going through and trying to find, who these top qualified candidates are, making sure that there's um, representation, um, not just in, in the interviews, but, you know, um, in our staff. So uh, the process is, you know, you, you do that, you open it up to the public, you, you also try and have some conversations and look for people behind the scenes for sure. And most clubs, honestly, just do the behind the scenes stuff. And the, the stuff out front is either just a front or they don't even do it sometimes, um, depending what level of your organization, what sport you're in, but um, for us, it was super important. I mean, it, like I, I can walk you through the first year on the women's side, like, you know, we did an open call. We had, um, I think nine interviews. 
then we did five, four or five second rounds of interviews. And that those interviews were, were primarily with Eric and I. Eric is also the sporting director of the club. So um, that was the, the process. And then, you know, once we narrowed it down, we actually brought in the board um, to, to help us with the decision. So I know I mentioned a 15 person ownership group, but we have a seven person board and then a four person executive committee. So there's layers to how decisions are made. And so we just kind of went through those layers and then we, we moved the process forward. Um, like, you know, same thing when we were ready to make a move, I think with you, um, like when we promoted you from assistant coach to, from the men's to technical director the same year, that was more just like you had been with the club um, and for me, I see you as a leader, right? Like you're just a naturally born leader. And I was like, we got to get him a leadership role. That's it's simple as that. And um, so some decisions are that easy. And then there's some decisions that like, you know, I want to collaborate with the group on and, and follow more of a process on. Interesting. How do you get the players to come play for AFC and Ab? Well, two, we, two different teams, right? So we have two different processes. They're pretty unique and different in my opinion. Um, on the men's side, Eric does um, all of the recruiting and scouting, and he has, um, I would get his network, right? Um, you're part of his network. I know that you're out there watching a ton of games, um, and we brought in scouts and, and additional people, but it's all through Eric. You know, it's what Eric feels comfortable with. Uh, again, going back to that relationship between, um, you know, the front office and your coach, I think it's super important, super important to put as much, if not all of the trust in the coach that you can let them operate, you know, completely how they need to operate, give them the tools and resources, take away distractions from them, um, give them the opportunity to succeed. So that's what we really try and do for Eric is provide him an environment that he can do his thing. Cause when you do, you see what the result is, right? He like, he yeah. takes ownership of that. He likes leading the project. Um, and, and, and on the women's side, you, you've taken a leadership as well. It's just, it's less, I think it's more about network, um, who you know, who you can reach out to, because a lot of it these days, you know, it's, it's not just uh, local, it's global. Um, you know, obviously with players like Okumu that we've reached, um, you know, Eric isn't just watching college games. He's got connections with agents and deals that have fallen through last minute with players needing to be placed, if visas can get approved, things can, things can happen. So um, yeah, 100% network. And that for me has been on, on Eric and you, but um, it doesn't mean I'm not out there trying to, you know, work with other people to, to create new avenues for the club, but definitely um, we rely on our, our staff to do that. Okay. Now, when Eric was hired, what kind of culture did he create for, for the club? I think, I think his, um, he added to the culture that we were like, so we had kind of um, laid a foundation, right, um, of like this tight knit group that was like, um, really, uh, you know, just, it's a good organization, right, like we run properly, um, we take care of every individual um, in an equitable form that comes through our organization. He saw that, and as, as a le the leader that he is, um, he built on that and just made everybody closer, wanted to, um, you know, build into that mentality of finding the right type of player. And, you know, that's a weird phrase, right? The right type of player. The right type of player for him means someone that's dedicated and that has the mentality of wanting to work hard. Other things can be taught, right? It's like, you know, we're not, no one's perfect, right? But we bring in players that just like want to focus on, on, on bettering themselves, both as a player and off the field. So, you, you don't have to ha have like a, um, a clear history, right? Like we've, we've 
we've had a ton of different players from different backgrounds. And I love that, that he brings that to our environment to bring diversity to the team and to help each other learn from one another. Um, and I think the culture then eventually developed into a winning one because of what he was able to lead his, his team to do. Um, he always says that, you know, he can only do so much, but it's a player's game to get the results. Um, he led that, you know, our organization to get those results. And I think that winning kind of became part of our culture really quickly, which is wild. I don't know. I don't know if we ever anticipated that. And, and, and I don't think we would have that um, without Eric Redlin. Yeah. Now, how important is it to have like different players from different countries? Because I know like AFC Hanaba has guys from uh, Africa, uh, Europe. Uh, you also have Mami from Japan. How important is it to have those types of players i think like for number one i mean the reason i love soccer is because it's of its global footprint and it's honestly it's supposed diversity i think what's frustrating is i look at you know a lot of teams and clubs around the u.s and they don't reflect their community they don't reflect a diverse um group of people they don't reflect the the, the game the way i i see it and so for me, it's just, it's representative of our community, number one. Um, and number two, it's just important to who we are as an organization, man. I mean, so I'm, you know, you have a Muslim chair, um, brown man, you've got a woman owner and, and board member, you've got um, black owners, um, more brown owners, other immigrant owners. Um, we, we have a very diverse group um, and we don't just, say it right like it's it's like from top down and so I think imagine if you're a player from another country and you don't really know what you're getting into like a lot of times players who come to lower league soccer don't really know what it's going to be like and when they show up and they see you and they see me it it changes things man you know like I mean look at Yazid right like Yazid the South African lives with you right and just that's where he felt comfortable no matter what we were trying to do to convince him to do otherwise and then in his free time you know um him and I had some similarities and some common ground and he spent Eid with my family going to the mosque and stuff so like I don't think you can get that at other clubs interesting does the club have fans yes how many fans um yeah I mean it's fluctuating number um but we have a, a independent supporter group the main street hooligans and um they're i'd say they're about solid 20 25 um like consistent but like for me it's quality over quantity and you know I, i'll put it in a perspective right it's like um when the nor'easters came from o ocean city for our open cup game and we had i think that day we probably had 30 40 um hooligans chanting on, on this berm like very loudly flags and it was amazing in the rain um, and Ocean City's owners and staff came up to me and they were like, this is amazing. How did you guys build this? How, how, you know, tell us more about this. And so for me, I, you know, I shared that with them and I said, you know, I know that sometimes people get um, distracted by the size of your supporter group or whatever, but um, you know, I've become friends with a lot of them. Um, I would say most of them. And it's interesting. I, I didn't expect that. You know, I don't, ex I, I just didn't, didn't know a lot of things, what to expect when, when first getting involved with the club at this level. Um, and so outside of the hooligans, the fans are, I'm, I'm like, those are all my friends as well. Um, 
you know, there's, there's some people I've become close with, um, you know, families I've become really tight with. I'm just thinking and smiling because these are my friends. These are like the, some of the closest people in my life. Um, you know, I watch soccer games with a ton of them. I talk to them about politics and life and, um, yeah, it's just, it's a community. It's, it's a real community. Um, I'm really thinking about people like Miss Heredia from like Bishop Elementary and like getting connected with her. And yeah. first time I was like, you know, Tuna told Tuna, one of our owners was like, hey, reach out to Miss Heredia, go visit her classroom. Miss um, Heredia is a close friend of mine now, you know, like, and we still do work with Bishop Elementary and she's super impactful in my life, just as like seeing how she, she's a leader in the community and whatnot. So it's a two-way street, you know, it's amazing. That's good, man. That's good. Uh, let's move on here. Uh, the club also moved to the MPSL. Uh, what was the difference between the MPSL and playing your first season in the Great Lakes Premier League? Yeah, for I mean, the immediate difference was there was there was more local teams, better travel. Um, those teams were like you know, quote unquote, established like um, Detroit, Lansing. Um, Grand Rapids had an amazing following, huge following at that time. So the rivalries right off the bat just sparked everything that started clicking. Um, but like I said, again, logistics went up a bit um, in terms of expectations. And, um, you know, so bringing in Eric changed the mentality a little bit as well, right? We wanted to invest in our sporting side to become more competitive. Um, and he was able to bring that aspect right away, but that changed the mentality, right? Um, that's that winning culture he brought. And, and so those are the changes mainly. Okay. Now, how does the club like AFC and Naba get sponsorship? Yeah, uh, that's, that's my specialty, right? So, um, you sell sponsorship. Uh, it's, it's, it's based on relationships and, and a quality brand and, um, you know, so thankfully we had some great relationships and, and we, we knew what we could build and um, some people were willing to take a risk on us in the first year. Um, shout out Bank of Ann Arbor and especially, um, you know, Audi of Ann Arbor, Milk Means More. They were they were just so courageous, you know, in, in, in taking a risk and backing us and believing in, in a lot of that was believing in me. Um, and our ownership group to, to deliver on what we were promising. So I think, you know, a lot of people traditionally think it's like put a logo here, you know, hang a sign here. For me, when someone invests in your club, you become partners. And that partnership means you have to share common, um, common things in, in terms of the culture of your organizations, what you believe in. And so for Bank of Ann Arbor being our title sponsor right from the, the go, you know, I had a meeting with Tim Marshall where he, the CEO of Bank of Ann Arbor, where he asked me a little bit about our vision and, you know, he, he just, he's a community minded uh, man and he's shown that through his action and his investment. And when we've needed additional support, when I went to him and say, hey, I want to add a women's team, he stepped up, you know, not, not just him, the, the bank is a group, right? Um, and, um, whether that be Heather Rhodes from the marketing department or, or um, you know, we have a lot of fans from the bank too, right. Um, that, that are really close. And, and I'm, and I'm just thankful for the relationship that we have with our sponsors. It's not your tradi traditional, like cut a check and hang a sign type of deal, right. Like with Audi of Ann Arbor, um, JP's like become a close friend of mine. You know, we play tennis together now. 
um, I'm, I'm, I'm close with his wife and, you know, I was, I was her mixed doubles partner for a couple matches. And um, like, that's what this club is about to me is about community and connecting with people. And, and it doesn't stop there. So like, that's how we connect and we work and we support each other. But like, we, we work on other projects in the community together as well. And it, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it, it sounds like you have a lot of connection in a community. Now, as a chairman of the club, what does the club do to, to give back in a community? Yeah, for me, the, the club is literally a platform for anyone in the community who wants to use it to impact the community in a positive way. So really, soccer is a piece of our club, right? Um, it's the tool or platform that is maybe at the forefront right now. But if someone says, hey, I have this program and I'd love to do it with AFC, come on, do it. Let's go. So that's what I, I you know, for me, the, the thing that I wanted to kind of tackle was um, access. And so um, access to, to sport, to food, to a lot of things. And so I started working on a project back in 2017 called Community Kicks, which we launched in 2018. And that's kind of been my, um, you know, my main community project. Um, I partnered with, with Lindsay Tarpley and, and the United Dairy Industry, Milk Means More, to, to start this program where we, we started with one-offs, which basically means you go and do a one, one clinic in one community and then you, you dip kind of. Um, you leave them with a ball maybe or a small gift and um, you provide them a meal that day. But right away, we built connections with the kids and, and the kids were asking, when are you coming back? So the programming to year two switched to a four-week program where we could return four consecutive weeks. Um, it also increased the number of meals we were distributing. It changed our programming. We added cities. Um, we doubled up in Detroit and Ipsy. So um, for me, my focus is, is a lot on community kicks, but that snowballed into a lot of other projects. So we launched a whole foundation called the Mighty Oak Project, um, where you know, we started a youth scholarship program, a women's coaching scholarship program, a black coaches scholarship program. Um, we have a lot of different things that we're doing um, based around education, reading, um, food, nutrition, and access, just access to opportunity, right? And so, and most of our efforts are focused in Southeast Michigan, specifically probably between Detroit, Dearborn, and Ipsy, um, but doesn't mean that we're not doing work in other places. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, that's, I, I'm more like, I made a decision a while ago in my career that um, like community minded stuff is all I want to do. And so, you know, I do, that's, that's just part of what I do with the club. Um, you know, outside of that, I, that's, you know, I'm involved with your organization. I'm involved with a number of other sport related nonprofits, just because that's what I think we need to, to start looking at is how we can use sport to change, change our communities for the better. Nice. Now in 2018, the club, started the women's team why did the club start the women's team um i mean i wanted to do it from <clears throat> excuse me the second i got involved you know i asked jamie i said what's the vision for for adding a women's team and he said as soon as we can afford it you know it, it, it was never a matter of, of uh if it was a matter of when and how like you know and um really more the format was built around the men's side at first because that that's what was happening in the state and I guess you could almost say that maybe a bit that's where the, the blueprint was was laid out for. But, um, you know, I think the women's game in Michigan is um, it's massive, but it's also 
um, very, mm, trying to find the, it's very white. Okay. That's the best way to put it. It lacks diversity. It, 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 um, there's not as much um, opportunity. I don't think they cross as lines as much. Um, and and you, you see it more like the, the data and statistics in access and, and diversity in, in youth soccer right now are terrible. They're, they're triple, double to triple on the women's side. So for me, knowing how our culture of our organization is, that's one of the reasons we wanted to start is we want to start looking at how can we shift the narrative? How can we change things? How can we, um, how can we bring back the thing that we love most about the game, right? Back into the game. So that's, that, that was a key component. Yeah. It's crazy that you brought up that there's a lot of white people playing a sport. And I think like looking in America, a lot of people who play the sport are the people who can afford it. Uh, Whereas if, where I come from in Africa, I mean, kids just play on the street and, you know, that's how they get better. Now, my question to you is, what's your take on paying to play system? Yeah, the pay to play system is, um, it's broken. It's broken for sure. But access for sure is something that we choose to give someone. If you look at the system in the UK, for example, right? Um, like you said, not everybody has to be in a system. You can be playing in the alleys in, 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 in the streets, right? And, and start to develop your skills. But access is specifically denied to Southeast Asians in the UK. They're purposely kept out of the game. The same exact thing is happening here with non-whites um, and specifically the black community, but all non-whites. And, and when we look at you know, things here in Michigan, we can really see it, right? A lot of um, ethnic teams uh, continue to operate, you know, in their own bubbles because they're not accepted by um, other groups or they're looked at differently. Um, you know, if they don't fit this mold of, of wearing a certain type of uniform or training a certain type of way or doing things. And that's exactly what diversity is, is that you don't have to do things those certain types of ways. So do I think the pay to play model is, is the right model? No. I don't think it's the right model. Do I think someone has to pay? I, I just hate that statement. Everything in life costs money. Yeah, for sure. There needs to be investment, but like a system is broken, then let's fix it. Right. And that's just like so many systems are broken right now. And I think that's what we're doing is reflecting on how we can fix it. I, for one, don't know exactly how I can admit that. So for me, that's where I just try and control what I can in my communities. And that's like, okay, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to um, help train and discover the next player by increasing access. What I'm going to do is try and use the game to do what it did for me and so many others is like, you know, increase self-esteem, build confidence, you know, um, show kids that there's, uh, there are opportunities that they didn't realize before. Maybe that is playing soccer, but maybe that's also being a coach or an athletic trainer or, or just being an organizer and a community member, um, whatever that is. But yeah, it's something that it's, it's, it's hard to watch kind of go on. I mean, it's happening right in front of us and um, there's very little to be, you know, being done to stop it. Yeah. Now that you are a dad, would you pay for your son to play? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, that's a great question. It's a, a, lot, of, a lot of talk um, and would I back it up? Right now, I can say 100%, but I mean, I have to, you know, catch me in five, six years, you know, seven, eight years, but 
I mean, we, we do things differently. You know, I've always, so I grew up in a household where um, my dad, you know, I've, I'm a very privileged person, but my dad came from absolutely nothing. And I, he taught us how to understand that and showed us that. And that, that gave me a sense of balance at times. I personally was, you know, like I said, very privileged, but understanding not, not what, what it is to not have things, um, you know, makes you, makes you view things a certain way. And so for my dad, when it was like, you know, sport became a little bit more serious part of my life, which for me was how I made friends. It's how I socialized. Um, and it's how I, uh, how I fit in, honestly. Um, so it was an important part to me. My dad did not care about the minimum grades that the school required. He said A minus or better if you want to even think about playing sports. And so we were, we were an academic household. Um, and, and then from there, my mom was like, look, you're not, you know, I know you love basketball. I remember this going into my junior year or senior year in high school. I wanted to not go to England that summer because um, I wanted to stay for my basketball camps and really work like hoops was my, my love. And I wanted, I wanted to do the camps because like the politics is if you miss the camps, you're not going to make the team, you, you know, you might not get minutes and I wasn't good to begin with. So I was like, I got to do everything I can yeah. to, to, you know, get my way in the team. But she's like, you know, we're, we're going to England for the summer. And, um, you know, it's crazy how things work out that actually ended up being the last, um, the last summer I got to spend with my grandfather. And so it was huge. And we, I played a lot of soccer that summer. I played a lot of soccer that summer. Um, a lot in, in the gardens and in, in the alleys um, and in the parks, but it was just like, it definitely sh changed my life that summer, right? So you never know why things are gonna happen and how things are, but for me, I think it's important to have academics at the, as the priority in, for any ch child and, and have sport as a thing of fun and to play multiple sports. So I don't think you're gonna see Niall, I mean, unless he's like, yo dad, I wanna join this travel team then like we might have to cross that bridge, but I doubt, you know, honestly, he, he could be a chess player. He could be a quiz bowl, you know, mathlete, whatever he wants to do. Um, I got his back. Your mom is from England. Now, what team do you support from England? Oh, now you're gonna show me the cup, West Ham cup. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, so just to give you a little context. So like I grew up every other summer visiting London with, with my mom. And um, my grandparents live right off Green Street, which is a, I don't know if you know this famous soccer movie called Green Street Hooligans. Yes, yeah, so um, Green Street Hooligans are the supporter group for, uh, you know, are an infamous supporter group, um, very uh, wild hooligan group um, that supported West Ham. And, you know, Green Street is the street I grew up walking with my grandfather and um, we would walk to Bowling Ground and we would, we would never go in because things I didn't understand at that time. Um, but, you know, I still, I mean, I think of West Ham, I think of home, you know, like, yeah. so for me, it's a hometown club. It's not like a choice. I'd like, if I had a choice. I would not, I don't think I would have picked West Ham. This is the year for, you know, <laughs> we're doing great. It's fine. But it's like, you know, the suffrage I've had to go through and even my cousins who live in East London, man, most of them don't support it's mo mostly everybody it's their second team right it's everybody's second team um so for me i, I like have a lot of pride in in, in west ham uh, because one being a brown man to support west ham is just pretty funny sometimes but two it's it's yeah it's my hometown team i like it man i like it now let's get back to afc and now in 2019 
the men's team moved to the USL uh, too. Why make the jump? Because, you know, again, earlier you played in the Great Lakes and then you moved to the MPSL. Now you move into the USL. Yeah, I think um, the one thing I've learned about lower league soccer is that it's very fluid, right? It changes every year and you just have to kind of evaluate where things are. But for me, I love like, uh, like local rivalries and our fans have told us that that's important. Um, and our players, right, which is a big focus of what we do. Um, a lot of them would tell us that like, you know, we, we feel like USL2 is a better pathway. So we start, we've always explored it. We've always considered it. We like to evaluate what's out there and different options. You know, we're, we consider ourselves like, smart and um, insightful business owners. So we're trying to evaluate different options out there. We thought the move was right that year because just the timing made sense, right? Um, it was just a good fit. Um, and um, we were at a transition point where, you know, we, we had a year under our belt now with the women's side. We felt like we, you know, we had talked to you about making the move over. And so like things were falling into place and I thought that the opportunity was right. And um, the board and, and executive committee agreed and yeah, we went for it. Unfortunately, we haven't played a game still in the USL. Um, so it's, it's been tough, but um, yeah, it's been, sometimes you just have to see what's out there and, and, and go for it. Yeah. Speaking about not playing games in the USL, what was it like not to play the 2020 season? Um, I mean, it's not fun, but there's just bigger, more important things. Right. I mean, so I think a lot of people, might not like my answer that like, I mean, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Like, I think there was much bigger things in life going on than, than soccer um, at that level, especially. And that's no offense to, to our staff, our coaches, our owners and anyone. It's just, you know, I think there was much bigger things. I still think there are much bigger things going on. So it's tough. It's tough to sit here and say, oh, it was a tough decision and it's a tough decision because, you know, like you, you're going to impact some people, but at the end of the day, I think there's a lot more important, bigger issues at hand that take priority and precedent. So us is we're an organization. And so as an organization, that doesn't mean we stop, right? We didn't stop operating because we weren't playing soccer. We actually increased, we've, I don't think we've ever been that busy, you know, yeah. like, we increased community kicks from about 5,000 meals to 30,000 and went all digital. Like it was tough. That was a lot of work that we had to put in. Um, but yeah, so I, I, yeah, I know it's a weird answer. No, it's a tough answer. I mean, it's a tough question too. So uh, are both teams going to play uh, in uh, 2021? Uh, no, not for the league season and, and probably unlikely for anything else. I mean, we're trying to keep that, that option open, but um, again, you know, a lot of it revolves around safety in our community um, priorities and, and issue, you know, just the issues revolving around that. Um, I just, yeah, unfortunately we're not, we're not going to. If you had a, to play a, a, a game today, would you play the national anthem before the game? No. Why? Well, well, first, um, I, you know, I know that's a lot of talk as well. Um, but like, just just to be clear, our executive committee emailed um, both Justin Papadakis, the COO of USL, and Joel Nash of USL Two, I think towards the end of June of 2020, and let them know, hey, moving forward, it's just something that we're we're not going to do. Um, 
and uh, you know we didn't publicize it or anything, uh, but we won't. It's something that actually Jamie has always discussed with me, and and it's been an interesting topic. So for me, I grew up around the topic because, um, but not because of what maybe it was what it is today, but more so based on religion, right? So my first exposure of it was from Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, who played for the Denver Nuggets, formerly known as Chris Jackson. Um, he stayed in the locker room during the anthem and people basically started calling him, you know, a lot of bad things. And I felt, I was very young at the time, but I felt very connected to him in the story. And so I started thinking about this at a young age. And from that point forward, you know, um, it's been a tough thing for me. So even when Jamie and I would discuss it prior to, um, you know, 2020, a lot of times he said, I think we should stop playing. Them. I mean, like, let's say 2015, 2016, Jamie would talk about the nationalism and, and the underlying tones of racism and, and say, we shouldn't play it anymore. I, I just told him how, I wasn't sure because quite honestly, I, I know, I remember the names that Mahmoud Abdul Rauf was called and, and that was before 9-11. Right. That's before our society changed. So to be a Muslim man, not play the national anthem, it was I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared to do that. Yeah. Now I am. Now I am. So I have a little bit more confidence uh, and, and mainly because I educated myself. Right. I, I started researching the topic a lot more. Um, I learned about uh, Francis Scott Key, the, the author or the, the, the writer of the, of the national anthem, started learning about his his storied past. Um, about an omitted verse, um, about how the anthem first wasn't inducted, you know, implemented, why it wasn't. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's tied to so many things, right? Like Kaepernick uses it to protest police brutality. Um, but at the same time, it's like it has, it, you know, and people try and separate the militarization side of it. But it's like when you have flyovers at sporting events and you have camo jerseys, that's also connected to the topic. It's all very intertwined and related. It's all, you, know, you cannot separate politic from sport. Um, you know, someone that we both admire a great deal, uh, Mr. Mandela was the, the, you know, at the forefront of letting people know that sport is not something we choose to separate from, from politic. It is part of society. And most likely it is the biggest global cultural um, tying factor that we have as a similarity. So in fact, it's gonna always be at the forefront of politics and we have to use it responsibly. So I, I for one, understand that AFC is a small, tiny little organization but we're gonna change. Like we're gonna do things differently. You know, we're, we're not gonna do things because They've been done in the past and um, and we're going to learn with one another and that includes the community. So when we do things, the goal is to educate not only ourselves, but um, our community on why we're doing that. Yeah, no, I have to agree. We have to educate ourselves and our community. Now, let's get back into this uh, chairman business. Uh, as a chairman, what is your proudest moment with AFC and what is not so-called proudest moment with AFC? I would say um, our my proudest moment as chairman um, has to be with Community Kicks. Uh, you know, it, it's more about what we're doing in the community. Um, so 
you know, I, I actually go and do these clinics myself. It, so it's, it's just, it's very rewarding to see what, what it does for not only the, the kids that we're working with, but the players <laughs> that we take, right? Both on the men's and women's side, it's so impactful and changing to them. Like you can ask AZ, you can ask Frenchie, you can ask Odiambo, you can ask uh, Tara, Emily, you know, and any of these coaches that have come and been a part of what we're doing, change, they've changed. They, they are absolutely a different person than when they come to the clinics. And that's powerful, man. So that's, that's my proudest moment. And, and, and again, apologies to any of the purists that want a soccer moment, but for sure, that's my proudest moment. My not so proudest moment. Hmm. Oh, I think my not so proudest moment was in the first year. Um, so a fight broke out at one of our games. Um, and I did not know how to address that to the community. So I was uh, at the time naive maybe, or just ignorant to how to effectively communicate what had happened. Um, you know, having kids in the stand and seeing a fight, I, I was not happy. I don't want that ever. Um, but then I found out, you know, I spoke to the players and found out, you know, um, Tristan, Jacob, uh, was called a, a packy by one of the players from Muskegon and Jay McIntosh, um, one of our black players, uh, Jamaican came running through and, you know, to defend him and the, the other guy pushed back. Anyways, things escalated, but it, a lot of it revolved around race and, and defending of your teammates and backing. And I, 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 I didn't know how to handle it. Um, and I, I think I handled it pretty poorly, honestly, in terms of, you know, communicating things to the the community and how we felt about it. And I think I was more like, let's just get past this and, and I'll work with the players on it behind the scenes. But that, I think from that situation, I've learned to try and be more transparent. And so there's some good that always comes from, from failures, but um, yeah, I don't think I handled that situation the greatest. What does the future look like for AFC Anava? Exciting. Um, I think the Mighty Oak Project Foundation um, and, and the club are like um, just steering the ship in, a, in an exciting direction that like we have a very clear vision, uh, a strong focus and a big, big following and support that are allowing us to make a big impact in the community. So I think we're going to do more community work. Um, I think we're going to continue to be an uh, important part of the Ann Arbor community and extended. And I think we're going to continue to be an awesome soccer organization. Last question for you. Who is the best player to ever play for AFC and Naba? <laughs> Can I do one men, one for the men's side and one for the women's? Yes, sir. Okay. Wim, mom, mommy, I'm a Gucci. Um, yeah, of course, that's an easy one. I mean, that, but, that, that's not, but this is an easy question, though. I mean, it's for me, it's but like, and it goes, I mean, for it, mommy on the women's side and Okumu on the men's side. I mean, and it's not just of, of their accomplishments. For me, it's it's like their mentality, right? It's just different from every, and, and like, I know you and I talk about it all the time, but it's like, 
man, I'll never forget those first few trainings with Stanley. I'll never forget those first few trainings with Stanley. And I think that changed how I think about sport and football and, and being a competitor because Stanley brought something to the table where his mentality was like, of, you know, the, you'd leave nothing, nothing, you'd leave nothing else. <laughs> you know, you have to leave it all out on the field at every moment of, of every training. But the second you leave the, the, the pitch, you know, he's a soft-spoken individual who, when he laughs, bro, and <laughs> it's infectious. And it's like, it's wild, right? Like, so I started becoming infatuated with the switch of like how he was able to like just flip that on when he stepped in, the, in onto the pitch, but him as a person really is, he's one of the sweetest humans I've ever met. So those two people are so impactful in my life. So I'm just so thankful that, um, that they've, they've come to our club. Bilal Saeed, thank you for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks Boise. Appreciate thank it. Yeah. listening to telling our football stories and thanks to Bilal for sharing his story with us. Have a great day.